Welcome to yet another edition of Hunter Gatherers, the podcast of Hunter S. Thompson stories coming from our historic studio on Magazine Street in New Orleans. And as always, I'm Christopher Tidmore, joined by the host of this program coming from beautiful coast of Maine in Portland, our own... Curtis Robinson. There you go. And Curtis, how is it? Right here, it's excruciatingly hot at 100 degrees. How are, how are you up in Portland, Maine on the beach? Well, this, this, you know, August in Maine makes up for uh, the length of the winter and other things. It's beautiful. It's a little rainy today, but mostly this time of year, it feels like uh, the air conditioned the state. And this, this is the, the, August is a money month for Maine. And I think September is probably the best kept secret, though. I'm really, I look forward to September as well. But of course, this September is the return of politics as, as Congress comes back in session and all hell breaks loose. And apparently, uh, you know, I've lost all track of Trump indictments, but I don't know what the over-under is on that. Well, let's see. We, we, we got 13 indicted co-conspirators in the Georgia case, and we've got all the different other cases going on. But we got the first mugshot of Donald Trump, and that's something. And it was kind of interesting. It's timely because this is not a Trump program. This is a Hunter Thompson program. But the most common question that we got of the many questions, and that's what today is about, the many questions of Gonzo Fest the last official Gonzo Fest, was started and probably was most frequent. What would Hunter Thompson think of Donald Trump and everything that's going on? I, first of all, I, I would. this is one of those things where you wish to God there was an AI of Hunter Thompson still writing about this stuff because, my God, it would just be mellifious in its both condemnation and perspective and a little bit of, hey, you guys are equally a pox on both of your houses. So I'm curious, as bad as it got under Nixon as Hunter's Bete Noir, as bad as it got with George Wallace talking about this, this we, we've, we've gone to a level of perspective on politics that even surpassed anything in the 1970s. And that's saying something. I think, yeah, I, I think you're right. I think the, the across-the-board animosities there, I think it's not so much, you know, how much would Hunter think that Trump is worse than Nixon? Well, I don't know. I, I'm sure because he thought he, he said sometimes that Clinton was worse than Nixon. So uh, I'm sure that, that that if Nixon is the bar, I'm sure that Trump would clear it. What I would be so interested in is things like, you know, Hunter was a Fourth Amendment advocate. And I, I wonder what he thinks about the the seizures and, you know, uh, uh, Joe Biden's garage and Trump's home and, and things like that. And and I, I would be fascinated also, you know, Hunter grew up in the era of never trust a Fed. And if you grew up in that culture and you see you see indictments come down with with conspiracies, you know, conspiracies are uh, we always saw those as borderline thought crimes. What what's the overt act that, that kicks it over and conspiracies, conspiracy charges would always you know, drive the uh, the hunter crowd crazy. I, I think that's probably diminished a bit because it is Trump, but at at the same time, I'm I, I would just be fascinated by that and uh, and the other things and you uh, know I, I'm, I gotta I'm, say I'm you you miss him more now than than you have before. I mean I just I wish you were writing for Rolling Stone right now. I wish there was a fear and loathing on the campaign trail 24. So we will have to do our our minimal best to try to capture that. I will say you mentioned the Fourth Amendment thing and something occurred to me. Now no one exceeds the contempt that I have for Donald Trump. There are a few people who do, but even the most egregious case has a couple of points where you go, huh, if you're 
intellectually honest. And one of the things somebody brought up about Nixon and said, well, you got to understand, not everything is on the initial indictment. After all, the Nixon tapes came after he was indicted and was only discovered later and was added to the case. And I heard that, and and I, I had remembered that, but I hadn't really thought about it in my entire life. And I'm saying to myself, oh, but, that, but but that's the way of it, isn't it? I isn't mean, it? If you look at Bill, Bill Clinton. Uh, that started out looking into a real estate deal gone bad, yeah. and ended up with a, a badly soiled uh, dress. So you know what's what's these? Uh, and I'll grant you the special prosecutors in those days had much more power than than they do now. Yeah. But still, I mean, you've got you, these these things. Once you pull that thread, these lives are interesting, and and it, and it goes a little bit crazy. You know, it it was just interesting that. When you look back at Gonzo Fest, that some Trump came up, but I was listening to to our recordings, and and I don't recall anyone talking much about the war. And if you look at the Hunter World, you know through through his formative years, and if you look at '72, the war was such a big deal. I, I guess the draft was such a big deal. The draft was such a big deal. I mean, it, here's the thing. Let's let's ask the question. Would the writings have been what they were, would the political environment have been what they were if there had been an all-volunteer military in Vietnam, or let's just say Vietnam had been what we originally were billed it would be, let the Vietnamese fight their own war and we'll arm them like the Ukrainians, you know, with a few advisors. It, it, and the answer is no, it was the draft. It was the idea that I would involuntarily go get killed without my permission or choice. Um, in a place that doesn't bear on the defense of my own country. And none of the comparisons about the war, it's kind of interesting. It's the only people that are criticizing the Ukraine war, and I'm a supporter, by the way, supporting Ukraine. I think it's essential to our national security. On a personal level, I talk about it in my radio show. But the only people who are critical of that tend to be on the right right now. And really, you know, Visek and, and Trump more than anybody else. Ironically, they're the anti-war elements. Yes, they are, and we'll and we'll see. You know, it, it's uh, you know we we'll, we can talk about. It. It's interesting. My friends who were of an age to have been very uh, opposed to Vietnam, stopping the communists there with the domino theory that they would take over the rest of uh, of Asia. They they are very supportive of arming Ukraine and going and stopping the Russian communists there because they feel that they will take over you know parts of Europe and. I, I, it's it's a fascinating time, and it couldn't be more interesting politically. And I think you know we we had talked about beginning our uh, a political countdown early next year, but I don't know. I think they're about to force our hand, Christopher. I think we're about to have to go. It might be it might be twenty three to uh, twenty two to twenty three to twenty four about fear and loathing on the campaign trail because <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's true. It's, uh, I, I mean, it's, I, I, I got to tell you, between the, the debate last uh, um, on Wednesday night. And then the Trump turning him into Georgia, he marked Meadows and everything. It looks like we're going to get a court case much, much sooner, as soon as October, potentially. Um, we've got a court case coming up before the elections, before even the primary season starts. And so I think a lot of this is already underway. The debate, I, the debate was an example of something that was best put on. I think the New Republic had it best. Magazine not unknown to Hunter. It would be Trump won a debate that he wasn't even in and then won it with the mugshot the next day. When the mugshot, you got you to gotta give Trump, I, I give Trump a little political credit. When a mugshot is both the anthem for the right and the criticism of the left and it's the same freaking photograph, 
that's a political accomplishment and it's a mugshot. I think I think he had I think he had t-shirts up on his site within an hour. You could order a t-shirt. I it was it was truly you want to talk about owning it. He just walked right up and owned it and Am I wrong? Doesn't the actual mugshot look almost exactly like the fake mugshot that went around before? Yeah, it does. It, it, it's as if he had looked on a thing and, and, and duplicated it. And I would not put that past Donald Trump. I mean, as much as I think the man, it, one of the things I, I point out to people is Donald Trump doesn't believe in anything besides Donald Trump. The one thing that you can count on is he's another hypocrite as long as it benefits himself. Trust me, 10 years ago, if he had played the political environment, he probably would have played it from the left. It is what benefits him. He may have seen that and said, you know, I see an advantage taking a negative to a positive. And one of the. It's got good ratings. Yeah. The mugshot got good ratings before. So, so. Let's just let's use use our mugshot for our, our own purposes, well, and I think that's that's part of it. But you know, you you try to run that through the the Hunter Thompson AI filter, and it's just crazy. The one the one thing I did think though, when I got the inevitable wall with Hunter, I've thought about the debates is that the difference that he wrote about the difference between objective and subjective when it came, and he used Nixon as the example that even on paper he could have voted for Nixon. He got subjective. And believe in the, you know, the, I think he said the personal incarnation of evil yeah. to really understand Nixon. And I think that's part of, of what you see with, with Trump. I think the, the best thing that probably ever happened to Donald Trump was getting banned from Twitter. It's because it, it, it lessened their exposure to him. So you can, I think a lot of people are just going to be, they, they're going to look at that debate. I don't think anyone closed in on his debate. Also, with the possible exception of Senator Scott. I just saw everyone eliminate themselves from the vice president list. And Senator Scott and Ravishwamy, I think, uh, would be the other one uh, who is very clearly running to be Trump's vice president in all of this. I, I think you hit on something that on paper, what makes sense does not make sense when you know the person is one of the points I've made to people about Trump. And my, my question about all of this and when I was watching that, when I was watching the debate, I, so I watched the debate and then I watched afterwards tape delayed whatever you want to call it twitter delayed x delayed i watch the tucker carlson interview now of course we've got to acknowledge tucker carlson is not just a now he's these days he is the uh sort of paragon of the right in 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 journalism but tucker carlson started off as a hunterite he's still and he still has incredible affection for hunter thompson we we should we we should point out to to new listeners since we picked up so many of them that since Gonzo Fest, that we actually have an episode where we talk about Tucker Carlson and Hunter. Uh, it is in it is taken from Tucker Carlson's book, and and it ends. Let's just say it's a it's a it, the story ends with a hug. So yeah, make of it what you will. Anyway, and, go ahead. I'm and sorry, the reason I said that I had is to make a back reference. Tucker Carlson has embraced Gonzo journalism better than anybody I know. And, it, and there's silence. I, I can hear the mic drop and everybody's like, what the heck are you talking? Think about it. Tucker Carlson may not be coming uh, in a car from Vegas, but he's injected himself into the story so much that he's the story and the interviewer and the perspective and the tale and the network now. Yeah, I, I, in terms of participatory, you, I, think, I think you're probably right. I, I think that that's an interesting way to look at it. I think also that in terms of Hunter got to the point where he couldn't cover a story because when he walked in the room, 
he was the story. And I, I think Tucker Cross is probably like that at this point, that his covering of it is, is you know, sort of, sort of what it is. And, and that's interesting. I, I frankly, I've not, I don't know that I've seen anything he's done since he left Fox. Well, but, and, uh, and this is, and this is where I'm getting at. He got a hundred million people to watch the interview of Trump on X, on Twitter, whatever you want to call it. That's, much, is that true? Do we know that's true? We do. We, I mean, do, we do know. We know that we do know. It has been certified that the the number of hits for it. Now, could he have used a bot for part of it? We do know this, and I think it's fair to say his audience was at least as large, if not larger, than the debate of all the other candidates in the field. On oh, I'm sure, I'm sure that's true. Yeah. But but a hundred million—that's Super Bowl numbers. Well, no, but, but my, here's my point: he managed not to have a network, not to have any established media source and he's beating the media. And the reason I'm bringing this up is what you just said. Trump got off of Twitter and he got on Trump uh, Truth Social uh, and it was Trump never stopped talking to his supporters, his core. He just stopped talking in a in a place where you I or most of the conventional media actually paid attention. So he got the best of both worlds. He was still connected to his group. He wasn't. Now, what is the first thing he puts back on X on Twitter? His mugshot. He reintroduces himself at just the critical time and then does an interview on the same process that makes the conventional media essentially look impotent. We are in a situation where Rolling Stone was in 1972. It is the reason people are interested is it's talking to an audience that's frankly not paying attention to the conventional media in any way, shape, or form, cable. So to follow, to follow your analogy, then you, you think Tucker Carlson is to this election what Rolling Stone was to to 72? I think he's part of it, yes. I think we've reached a point, we've finally reached the tipping point. I think we've reached the point where where CNN, Fox, and and I say this, for those that don't know, I'm a Fox News radio reporter and, and talk show host. That's what my day job is. And I am the editor well, of an African... Well, you count radio stations, but well, yes, Yeah, I ahead. count radio stations. Well, I said Fox News Radio, and, and I'm the editor of an African-American newspaper. So I'm talking, when I'm saying this, I'm talking about myself. We've reached the point where, just as amongst young people, they were looking for a medium because they didn't connect with the conventional uh, mediums, now that has gone mass market. People aren't reading newspapers people aren't now watching cable news they're cutting the cord so much that something like x like twitter is on the verge of becoming as big and maybe elon musk isn't the idiot we thought he was for buying all of this maybe maybe not i don't know but i do know this it is everything is gonzo journalism everything is becoming podcasting everything is becoming where the journalist is essentially telling the tale from inside the story it is the ultimate triumph at some level of gonzo journalism. Well, yeah, yeah, you're, you're right. Hunter was always both interested and, and, and a little bit irked, I think, that so many people at the time, in the let's call it the 90s, would refer to him as the first blogger. And he's like, I don't have any idea what they you know, what Why would they do that? And, and, and that, of course, he, he wasn't a blogger. He did end up with his final columns, of course, were on ESPN.com. Of the Hey Rube series, but it was, but I think what they meant was the style and the outside of the mainstream, and that and that's probably true. I mean, uh, Hunter, I don't know. I think 
I don't know if Hunter was possible without the magazine uprising yeah. of the 60s and 70s, and that was fueled by advances in technology, really, the, the ability to make money at, at that level. And then secondly, the youth vote, you know, they went from 21 years of voting to, uh, to 18, and I think that was a big deal. But you're right, it was every bit the same upheaval, so we found yet another parallel to 72. You know, mostly this thing, we, we set out to cap Gonzo Fest, but, but instead we're just firing ourselves up for the election. Well, and we don't mean, and we don't mean to do that in just the strict sense, but we're, there is, there's a lot of lessons. I'll tell you, one of the things that was interesting to me is the day of the debate, because uh, I am an old media guy, and I had, some, and I had a lot of paperwork to do and a lot of uh, writing to do, so I just put on C-SPAN in the background. So I'm the kind of guy who watches C-SPAN hours on end and loves book TV. I own a bookstore, after all. And so I'm just sitting there, and what they had was each of the candidates for president on their book TV or C-SPAN appearances about something. And one of them was Nikki Haley, and she was asked the question, and this is, and to me, this was Hunter's comment about if you can label something politically, you own the concept, and how he did, how he talked about this. Thanks. And Nikki Haley told a story, and I thought it was it explained both how Trump is winning the election and the same time about how words matter. The story is this. She was UN ambassador, and she was asked the question, when were you most afraid of giving a speech in the UN? She said, well, I was never afraid of me giving a speech. My most afraid is when somebody else would, namely Trump. So Trump comes in to give the speech, and the night before, she's calling him, and she's saying, well, Mr. President, you know, this is not like addressing a rally. It's, it's like um, the analogy I can use is it's like addressing a church, like you're in a church. You have to be very formal. They take it on. And he goes to, he says to Nikki, he says, oh yeah, I get that, I get that, I get that, I get that. Uh, by the way, I have a great concept, you know, with, with all these nuclear tests going on in North Korea, what if I called Little Kim, Little Rocket Man? And there's oh, silence. Huh? And she's like, to the UN? Uh, sir, I think it's a really bad, 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 bad idea. Well, the next day, of course, he gives the speech and he says, and Little Rocket Man there in Korea. And, and, and she, yes, puts her hands, yes. she puts her hand in her face. She said, the interesting thing was, that afternoon, she's meeting with the president of Uganda who leans in and says, Ambassador, what are we going to do about this little rocket man? Yes. Trump defined the words insultingly, but he defined the words and he owned the debate. And one of the things you saw in that debate that he wasn't even in is he owned the debate because he owned the words. And that's something I think Hunter would have appreciated, even as he was depth and loathing, uh, <laughs> fear and loathing of the experience. And I, I just, in the political side, because the other question, there were two questions that came up at Gonzo Fest. One was Trump. The other one was, what would Hunter think of woke culture? And this was a pretty liberal audience. And a couple of people who were experts and hunters that would have said he would have been completely repulsed by it. And is the argument being that, you know, Hunter was a free speech advocate and that was part of it. And, and so it's all a question of how far can you take free speech? Where do you take it? How, how much does personal liberty extend? And that was sort of the cap on not only Gonzo Fest, but the entire political environment we're in. That's true. And, and it was part of Gonzo Fest, the, the woke culture. And that was that was interesting. That even came up on one of the panels to, to you could feel the ripple of energy go through the room when. Because uh, uh, one of the, the panelists, one of the speakers, really said essentially he took the position that Hunter would have hated woke culture. And, you know, labeling that culture woke culture is itself 
uh, to your point, defining it in a way that, that perturbs some people. But that was one of the themes running through the, the Gonzo Fest experience. The other thing that ran through that, the Gonzo Fest that, that I wanted to, to, to mention just to, to get on the record is I was really surprised at how much deep scholarship we ran into. Yes. People doing uh, really deep comparisons of the Vegas book, the different drafts, looking up just just the depth and seriousness of it. I found that very heartening. I think so. I think Hunter's finally getting his literary due in academia. And it's about right. It, it takes about 20 years. You know, it, it starts about 10 and it takes about 20 years after somebody passes for academia to suddenly not consider you a, a, a trend or a theme, but a critical part of the American culture. Some of us, namely you and others, figured that out a lot sooner. But, you know, I, I, I'm, a, I'm a refugee from academia. We're a little slow. so. You know. <laughs> well, it's a lot safer with Hunter gone. That, that's completely true. But I thought I, your best I, question I was, that- I thought your best question was, would would uh, Hunter be invited to speak on college campuses? And the guy says, "Well, yeah, it's not us." And it was it was it was it was oh, definitely. And I I just was trying to smile, saying that knowing Hunter, he probably would have been provocative, and everybody would be protesting against him. It's you know, <laughs> it's amazing how being gone can can change people's perspectives. Well, it's things. not just a question of, of, of would he be welcome on campus now. It turns out he wasn't that welcome then. It turns out that. In 96, the University of Louisville pulled out a couple of weeks ahead of the event just simply because of the, they suddenly started seeing the kinds of press that they would get. And, and you, you know, one of the things about Hunter is, is it might be safer personally because he's not going to personally do things, but his ideas are still very frightening to, to people. His ability to sort of cut through a lot of the, the culture of the, at the time is still very valid. And I, and I think that that's the reason people um, miss him. I mean, when it's a unique voice. We, we don't have, I mean, we can talk about who's the next Hunter S. Thompson and would he be riding at Rolling Stone or Substack? I guess Matt Tabibi would, you know, look at Matt Tabibi. He was actually a speaker at Gonzo Fest just a few years. Well, I shouldn't say a few years, a few Gonzo Fests ago. Because of course they didn't have it in the pandemic, but it, but it, you know he was what eighteen years at Rolling Stone. He's on Substack now. Yeah, he's he's considered too controversial to be a speaker at a conference about Hunter Thompson. If that doesn't really make you think a little bit, just a little bit, and, I, and honestly, to, in Ron Whitehead's defense, I think if if Matt if if Matt had really pushed it he probably would have said oh i'd love to have you here i, mean, I don't think that's him but it literally in that crowd matt would have been too controversial and yet he essentially headhunters job and he's one of the biggest hunter admirers and crony i mean it that's how far we've come and matt hasn't changed his politics at all it's just he's commented on some things that with a little too much intellectual consistency i guess is the best way of putting it well he, he has shown he has shown consistency particularly toward uh, uh, the russia gate uh, controversy, but you know that that that's one of the things that Gonzo Fest did, and and to to put a put put the cap on it, I think that that was one of the bigger surprises is is how many times that certain questions just came up as a theme, and the other is the when the organizer at an event 
an extremely credible person, a serious artist, says this is the last one, and absolutely no one believes him. <laughs> that shows the power. And, well, and I will say that no one really believed him because not only the power in the room, but the two uh, young ladies that we had on our final episode that organized it with him essentially said they'd take it over. And he kind of fair was enough, okay with that. Enough. So, well, I mean, there, there was a, yeah, there was we, a... We, need a, we need a GoFundMe page uh, pretty soon. <laughs> yeah. And uh, so, so there it is. So Gonzo Fest in the books that we'll put this on as the end cap. And uh, clearly it, it's a platform going forward into what is shaping up as the craziest political year and uh what how many months how many how many months to the election so let's 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 put it we are at the end of august as we post this on our various platforms from spotify to audible to uh to apple and others and um that gives us exactly 14 months until the uh, red letter day of fear and loathing of 24 so that we're, we're at the countdown as we speak Curtis Robbins. Let it begin. Let the countdown begin. <laughs> All right. On that note, folks, we'll see you in the next edition of Hunter Gathers, the podcast of Hunter S. Thompson stories. Having given the story of the quote unquote last Gonzo Fest, we will go forth with new stories in the coming weeks, but also some new perspectives of WWHD. What would Hunter do in this coming year? Southern gentleman hit the highway, gave us stories we could share of crooked schemes, shattered dreams of people everywhere. Road of whiskey screams and motel rooms where no one seemed to care. Road of deep, dark, secret places made us feel that we were there.